0: Let's open the Bible together to the book of Isaiah in the first place. Isaiah chapter 65. And then we'll read a portion from Luke chapter 19. These readings are taken in connection with what we confess in the Belgic Confession, Article 17, about how God came to seek us sinners. Isaiah 65. This is the Lord speaking. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. A people who provoke me to my face continually sacrificing in gardens and making offering offerings on bricks who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places who eat pigs flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels who say keep to yourself do not come near me for I am too holy for you these are a smoke in my nostrils a fire that burns all the day behold It is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, Do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servants' sake, and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob, and from Judah possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down. For my people who have sought me but you who forsake the lord who forget my holy mountain who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny i will destine you to the sword and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter because when i called you did not answer when i spoke you did not listen but you did what was evil in my eyes and chose What I did not delight in." From here we turn to the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke chapter 19, reading the verses 1 through 10. Speaking of our Lord Jesus, Scripture says, "...He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save The Lost. I invite you to turn with me in the Book of Praise to page 505, where we have the Church's Confession, Article 17 of the Belgic, concerning the rescue of fallen man. Article 17. We believe that when He, and that's the Lord, When he saw that man had thus plunged himself into physical and spiritual death and made himself completely miserable, our gracious God in his marvelous wisdom and goodness set out to seek man when he trembling fled from him. He comforted him with the promise that he would give him his son born of woman to crush the head of the serpent, and to make man blessed. That's our confession, based, of course, on the Word of God. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, ever since Article 14 of the Belgic, we've been dealing with our great human problem, You could call it a crisis. It's the crisis of sin. Man's very deliberate, voluntary act of rebellion brought the entire human family into condemnation under God's wrath. It brought us corruption, so sin is in us. It influences us. It corrupts us. We confess this in Article 15 that the crisis is so deep and so pervasive that sin continually streams forth from our sinful hearts our whole life long, our thoughts, our, our, our words, our actions. So we've been really seeing the great need. We are sinners who need salvation. Then in Article 16, we came to see that God has a plan to save us. The plan of election, it's called. Before the world was created, God mapped out what He would do for His rebellious creatures, how He would come to their aid. And now in Article 17, we confess how God puts that plan into place, into action. So, from the need for salvation to the plan of salvation, we now come to the promise of salvation given to sinful mankind. Article 17 starts, off, starts us off on the course of God's intervention into our mess, the things that God has done in order to rescue us. And so I bring you this Word of God under this theme, the God of grace sets out to rescue rebellious man. The God of grace sets out to rescue rebellious man. We will see that he is the God who seeks and he is the God who comforts. Well, Article 17 summarizes the ugly circumstances that we're in in its opening sentence. We believe that when the Lord says that man thus plunged himself into physical and spiritual death and made himself completely miserable. That's just pulling together the things we've confessed in Articles 14 and 15. We, are, we humans are by nature in this state of misery, and we have only ourselves to blame. It's, it's we who plunged ourselves into this circumstance, and the result of our actions is that we have made ourselves completely miserable, we confess, and you might recall that word misery or miserable misery from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Days 1 and 2, where we confess how great my sins and misery are. So it's not just that we're corrupt. It's not just that we're rebellious, that too, but in all of that, we are actually miserable. What does that mean? Well, I think we probably have a sense of it, Misery is to feel terrible. If you are sick in your bed for days in a row, you feel miserable. We might feel miserable in other situations, like if a relationship has just broken up and your heart is broken, or if you've lost someone dear to you, and yet the misery that our confession is talking about, that the Bible is talking about, is far, far worse. It's more profound. It's a feeling of guilt, of grief, of turmoil, and not just feelings, but it's it's the reality because our relationship that we had with God, this good and wholesome and loving relationship that He had with us, it's been broken. And in its place, there's no longer any love from God toward us. It's just wrath from God toward us. Like we saw this morning, we are miserable in our of condemnation. By nature, we are condemned criminals on death row, waiting only for our final end to come. That's how we go through life without God, just by nature. We experience this misery through and through. It's not just the future reality of darkness, it's a living condition for mankind. Instead of us loving our God with a pure heart like we were created to do, our corrupt nature, our corrupt heart can only hate God. Instead of loving our husband or wife, we blame each other for sin. Instead of loving our neighbor, we selfishly love only ourselves and at the expense of our neighbor. These are things that, we, that are part of our corrupt nature. We were created for fellowship, but our sin breaks relationships all over the place. We were created to love God and our neighbor, but all we can do now is, is, is hate both while we chafe under the burden of guilt and await that final condemnation in the fires of hell. That's the misery Scripture speaks of and our confession is referring to. Our sin has removed all the hope out of this life. It brings us humans into the dark and and certain prospect of everlasting punishment. That's our our completely miserable state of existence as sinful people. And along the way, we, we humans, we might distract ourselves For a few moments by this fleeting pleasure or that fleeting pleasure, but there is no escaping the coming doom and there's no escaping the overall condition of misery. From the human perspective, our vantage point, there is no future, there's no way out of this, there's no expectation of anything but gloom and destruction, and as we understand that, that only makes us more hateful, more rebellious toward our Creator. This is how things have been since the original sin in the Garden of Eden, the human condition without hope, without help. If you were God, if you were the Creator, knowing what your rebellious sons and daughters have done, what would you do in that circumstance? Wouldn't this be the time to cut your losses? Think of a parallel situation. If you had a child who was nothing but ungrateful, who did nothing but hate you, who walked away from you, joined forces with your archenemy to oppose you, to actually rebel and stand against you, what would you do? If you had a child who had no redeeming qualities a son or a daughter who had no features or characteristics which were attractive or lovable, a child who only ever wanted to get away from you, who only wanted to actually overthrow you, how would your heart react? How would God react? Would it not have been normal for the sinless, majestic, holy, awesome Creator to simply execute the judgment that was right and proper... The judgment of eternal death upon His rebellious son Adam and His insubordinate daughter Eve. And yet, God surprises. God is just, but He's something more as well. The confession says, our confession says that when man plunged himself into death, our gracious God in His marvelous wisdom and goodness, set out to seek man when he, trembling, fled from him. At that moment when all we humans could expect was a casting away, God came to seek us. This is the start of the grace we've been shown ever since the first step of it. Hardened sinners, we wanted only to run from God, but God comes looking for hardened sinners. God comes looking for us. Just think of how it went there in the Garden of Eden. The moment that Adam and Eve sinned, they realized they were naked. They were filled with shame. They had to cover themselves. They were already retreating from fellowship with each other by covering themselves. And when they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, those fig trees, they realized, didn't cut it. And so they ran to hide behind the thickest trees they could find. They heard their God coming, the righteous one, the holy one, the only good one, the only one who loved them, the only one who could possibly do anything to help them in their situation. And man ran the opposite way as far and as fast as they could. This is our nature. This is what we humans do. We're runners. And we have to really understand that, beloved, about ourselves, but also about others. Perhaps others in our own family or circle of friends, people who don't seem to care about God, people who just walk their own way. We as Christians can have trouble understanding their actions and their attitudes, we grow concerned for them. Maybe we grow frustrated with them, sometimes angry with them. But then look back here to your, our first dad and our first mom in the garden. See in our first parents a mirror, a mirror of our own souls. Our first parents ran from God after rebelling against God, and every child of those parents, which is all of us, does the same by nature. It's not a surprise when humans turn their back on God. What is a surprise is that God doesn't turn His back on us. That's a surprise because He's the God who comes to seek the sinner. That's His nature, unlike ourselves. We would have turned, had we been in His shoes, Turned on our heel, marched out of the Garden of Eden, called fire down to consume the whole existence of man and creation, washed our hands of the whole kit and caboodle. But what does the Lord do? Genesis 3: the Lord calls out to the man, Where are you? The man's trembling. He calls out to the trembling man. He reaches out to the rebel, he approaches the self-corrupted, God-hating, neighbor-loathing man, and he extends to him the hand of grace. And what we see there in Genesis 3 is a pattern of the entire Bible, it's the pattern, pattern of the entire world history. Man turns away in fear and hatred, but God pursues. God comes after him with outstretched arms, and he does this tirelessly, even after multiple rejections. We read about this in Isaiah 65. I spread out my hands, says the Lord, all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. We sang about that a little bit from Psalm 106. He's talking about the Israelites I spread out my hands calling to them. A rebellious people. God's chosen people that He had rescued from Egypt. And He still has His hands outstretched. Isn't that the way we ought to go with those we know? Rebellious sons, daughters, parents, relatives, friends. Not condoning not compromising, but nevertheless holding out the hands of forgiveness and love, calling them to repent and join us with our Heavenly Father just as He held out His hands to us, calling us to believe and repent. In Isaiah 65, the Lord is pictured holding out His hands to His rebellious people, but He did more. Isaiah says a little bit later, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. Think about that. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. Who is he talking about? He's talking about the Gentiles. Gentiles were clueless, just living out in the other nations all on their own outside of Israel. They didn't even think about the God of Israel. And the Lord says, I was ready, I am ready to be sought by those lost Gentiles. And that's been happening ever since the day of Pentecost. We're, we're a fruits of that, aren't we? We're the lost Gentiles. So whether it's Jew or Gentile, whether it's covenant child or, co- or non-covenant child, God is this way. He goes out to seek the active rebels. Isn't that what the Son of God did too, coming to the earth We read about that from Luke 19, walking through Jericho, Jesus stops below a tree, a sycamore tree, and there's a man in that tree. Never met this man before, but the Lord knows this man, and He knows what He needs. He says to him, Zacchaeus, he has his name in mind, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today zacchaeus the thieving tax collector zacchaeus the sinner did not know he needed salvation did not know he was being sought he's isaiah 65 being fulfilled but along comes the savior to seek him to call him out of his sin to call him out of his rebellion to call him out of his tree and into the family of god god the son came To implement that eternal plan of God by seeking the elect, lost souls who were without hope in the world. That's how Luke ends the text in Luke 19. The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. That's what he does. Is that not amazing? What a kind-hearted grace-filled God. He seeks the lost and He comforts them with the sure promise of salvation. For that's the other thing Article 17 brings out, and it's the second major verb used to describe God's action toward man. The first verb is seeking. He seeks fleeing man, but then the other verb is He comforts. He comforted him with the promise that he would give his son, born of a woman, to bruise the head of the serpent. God came seeking Adam, and when he found him, he offset his misery with a promise of better things to come. Now, whenever God makes a promise in the Bible, he always does it as part of a relationship, a larger pre-existing relationship. God doesn't just approach individuals randomly and make promises on the spot. No, those promises, they're part of a framework, a relationship, which He calls His covenant. What is that, a covenant? Well, just think of it as a relationship, but a relationship of love. God establishes that relationship. He sets the parameters of that relationship, but it's a relationship of love, like a marriage. God extends promises to His people, He calls His people His bride, and then He has His people make promises to Him, promises to trust and obey Him as their husband. There are then promises from God and from His people, from both parties, and both end up having these obligations toward each other. That's how a covenant works. Just think of marriage and the marriage vows that husband and wife make. So, in God's covenant, there are blessings to be enjoyed, but if you break the covenant, there's also punishments for that. That's how God set things up in the Garden of Eden at creation. He promised Adam to continue blessing Him with life, with fellowship. And on the other hand, if Adam and Eve were, uh, ate from that tree that they were forbidden to eat, then they would be punished. Punished. They were obligated to trust God by eating from every other tree, but not that one. So, when it was that Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they and, and we, the human race with them, we broke that sweet covenant. We violated our obligations. We, we committed adultery against our husband, and that incurred true guilt, brought down the curse of God against us. That's what God had said in Genesis 2, on the day you eat of it, that forbidden fruit, on that day you shall surely die. God is holy. God is true. God never lies. And so on the day when He came into the Garden of Eden, all that Adam and Eve could expect was the application of the curse. Adam and Eve had broken the covenant. That was clear. And in their misery, they knew that all they had coming was was eternal punishment. That's what they were expecting. That's why they were hiding behind the tree. But what they received instead of the punishment was a promise. It is true there was punishment, but it was a temporary punishment, not an everlasting punishment as they had been expecting. They they had made their bed in their rebellion and they would have to lie in it the woman would have to have experienced a lot of pain in childbirth. The man would have a lot of toil and sweat to work the earth. That was their punishment. But they would not have to be buried in their curse in eternal death. We humans had broken the covenant with God, we had joined the enemy Satan. But what does the Lord of all grace do? He issues a promise to bring salvation. He breaks up the covenant that we had made with Satan, and He reestablishes the covenant with Himself. And He does that by putting something called enmity between the devil and humans, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. God promises a future seed who would, in fact, come along and bruise or crush the head of the serpent. That's how God words that promise. It's the very first promise in the Bible, Genesis 3, verse 15. Speaking to Satan, who had tempted Eve in the guise of a serpent, he says, The Lord says, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This was a promise. What does that word enmity really mean well you can hear that it sounds close to the word enemy and in this context it means to make two parties the serpent and the woman who used to be friends it means to now make them enemies to put hostility between those two And at first you think, well, that doesn't sound like good news, does it? I mean, is hostility good news? Is is enmity really something good and useful? Well, then you have to remember our miserable situation and how it was triggered by Satan's temptation and that our continuing misery, is on account of being friends with or in covenant with the devil. And the devil, brothers and sisters, is one friend nobody needs. If you are a friend with Satan, that means you are an enemy with God. You cannot have it any other way because Satan is an arch enemy of God. So if you're you're on Satan's side, you're not on God's side. And that means if you're not on God's side, there's only eternal damnation. Satan is no friend at all. He's an enemy who disguises himself as a friend, who pried us away from the love of God into his dark-filled, hate-filled world. What we need is to break away from the devil. We need to have the relationship with Satan severed, cut. And that's what the Lord does with Genesis 3, verse 15, that that first promise, I will put enmity, I'm going to cut the bond between you and the devil. I'm going to separate the devil from you. And that is nothing but grace. For breaking up that demonic covenant means that the Lord re-extends His covenant with us. His covenant of grace now with us. After seeking out rebellious man, God promises a solution to His rebellion. The solution is enmity with the devil and a renewed friendship with the Maker. And that's what we as Christians that's the position we're in and it's it's a fine line to walk isn't it to observe and and experience and live out the enmity with Satan and Satan's followers so all the unbelievers there's enmity between us and them and at the same time shining the light of the gospel into their lives into the lives of human followers of the devil. Satan's kingdom in this world is anti-God. It's an anti-Christian mindset. It's got a please-yourself attitude. And, And as we live in this world, part of our sinful heart will always be attracted to the way of sin, to Satan's domain. Part of us will be drawn to the way the world thinks, drawn to the way the world parties, drawn to the way the world lives. But lest we get tempted, let's remember the misery of being part of and aligned with Satan's kingdom, being in covenant with Satan. Let's remember the, the miserable condition that we were in. And then let's also recall the blessing of the separation, the blessing of the enmity This line of separation between darkness and light, unbeliever and believer. Yes, on the one hand, absolutely, let us extend, let us shine the light of the gospel to those who are currently living in darkness, but let's never follow them in their darkness. That is the the line that we have to walk. We must never become friends with the world in the sense of partners with the world because the world's in rebellion against God. But we must show those who are in the world, show them the way out. We must show them the grace and the love of of the Lord God and explain to them the free promise of salvation, of forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. It's, It's offered to them just as it was offered to us. We have to remember it's only in Christ that anyone is saved. That's what our confession also stresses. The fulfillment of this first promise, it came in the Lord Jesus, Son of God. He would be the one to to crush the head of the devil. That's a very graphic image, right, to crush the head of the devil. ESV translates bruise. Other other translations have crush. It does mean a death blow to the head of the devil. How did the Lord Jesus do that? We think of uh, crushing or a death blow. We think maybe of an epic battle of swords and clubs and spears. Did Jesus perhaps have one of those battles with Satan, or did he go after him with his bare hands and have a bare-knuckle fight? No. He did something harder. He did something none of us could ever hope to do. Jesus crushed the devil's head by breaking the, the thing that Satan held over us. The strength of Satan's alliance with us was the very fact that we had rebelled against God and broken covenant with God, for God cannot tolerate sinners. Our sin, it it instantly alienated us from God, it placed us under God's wrath, and that's what Satan always was using to hold us as slaves. In his grip under his power. It was the wrath of God against us that Satan leveraged to his advantage. God had said he would punish us for sinning, and Satan was determined to hold God to his word. That's why the word Satan means accuser. In Scripture, he's constantly presented as the accuser of God's people coming to God in heaven, accusing God's people of their sin, their rebellion, and saying, God, you've got to hold them to account. God had said that we must die, and so there must be death. And so long as that reality was in place, we humans, we were out of God's favor. We were then sinners and slaves to the devil. That was Satan's hold. That was Satan's power. That was the unbreakable chain in which we were held. And Satan was counting on that. But what Satan was not counting on was the mercy of God. For this God who is so just is also so merciful. He seeks and He saves the rebels. He's the one who comforts rebels by promising to satisfy His very own justice with one mighty substitute For sinful man his only begotten son he promises to our first father Adam you will not have to somehow pay this awful price for your rebellion I will pay it for you in my son I will send him to earth to be born out of your line he will come as the last Adam and he will break the stranglehold of Satan over you. He will turn things around and bring you salvation. He will offer to me the perfect obedience to my law that you did not offer, and he will suffer for your sake the full penalty of my wrath, so that I will no longer be angry with you, that my justice will be satisfied, and then the devil will have no claim over you any longer. Then we will be transferred as we saw this morning, from the kingdom of death, the the realm or the state of condemnation, to the kingdom of light, the state of justification, of pardon. You know, there are times when we are deeply concerned about somebody we love because of their sin. We may even have in our own life a deep-rooted sin and though we're struggling against it we can't seem to shake it and we can get alarmed at the, the powerful grip that sin has At the waywardness of our own heart or the heart of someone close to us, we might even fear that God will no longer bother with them or bother with me because all we humans ever seem to do is turn and stumble and fall and rebel. I mean, when you sing Psalm 106, does it sound so strange what the Israelites were doing? Don't you do it in your own life in maybe different ways and different sins? But aren't we always turning But brothers and sisters, your God is the God who seeks the rebellious, who goes hunting for the wayward and the lost and the straying. Your God is the one who comforts you with the covenant promise of forgiveness which He purchased in the death and resurrection of His dear Son. He's not a God who gives up. He doesn't turn His back But like Isaiah 65 says, he extends his arms. And particularly to his covenant children, to whom he's bound himself on oath, he he has his arms open saying, come back. Come back to me, my child. Come back again if you've strayed. The devil has no claim on you anymore. I have crushed his head. By crushing my son on the cross so give up your sin yet yeah, give it up again for the thousandth time in your life give it up and come back to me there's nothing you've done that I won't forgive so come and take comfort come and experience the joy of my salvation in my son it's yours for free. Amen.